Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. And I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. Today is a special day where we review Star Trek Insurrection. Just kidding. <laughs> no, no, it, it's just no, reality. No, that was a couple days ago. <laughs> yeah, there was an insurrection in the United mm-hmm. States and we're recovering from it. And we're here to be your weekly dose of forgetting politics. <laughs> yes, your weekly holodeck visit away from reality into Star Trek Voyager family series. We made it. Yes, we really did. We had obviously a little bit of a delay this week because we were confused by the events at the Capitol. But now we are here and we are very excited to talk about Janeway, basically. But (laughs) but (laughs) Janeway plus others. We're mostly (laughs) excited to talk about the family of our Voyager crew. Now, we have decided to start something new. We used to have in our pilot series a little thing at the beginning of each show where we would describe a plot badly of an episode. And obviously, during our family series so far, we haven't had a little bit at the beginning. So kind of at the end of the series, we are thrown in a new bit. It is called A Random Star Trek Thought of the Week. Because Rihanna and I are constantly, when we're watching these episodes, obviously, we're trying to just focus and do research on the family elements of them. But it is so hard not to think about all the other crazy stuff going on in these episodes. So Rihanna, I would love for you to share your random Star Trek thought of the week. I would love to. So this week when I was watching Voyager, I watched an episode where Tom Paris is in the holodeck being Captain Proton and Harry Kim is being his little sidekick and they're having a great time in the holodeck and then Janeway's like Janeway to Paris and Kim please report to the bridge and so they have to just run out and head right to the bridge in their holodeck gear their (laughs) costumes and so I had a random thought thinking about how bizarre and amazing it would be to be on a starship and say either you're like a lower decks crew you're a random crew member you're a bridge crew whatever you walk by and you see Catherine Janeway the captain of your ship in her amazing Victorian gown <laughs> walking around. Or you see Data going to fight Moriarty as, you know, he shows up in his Sherlock Holmes outfit. I just love the idea of random crew members walking around in their holodeck clothes. That's literally also how Generations begins is they're on the holodeck in their like sailor outfit for Worf's promotion. And then an emergency happens and they all go to the bridge of the Enterprise in their (laughs) sailor outfit. (laughs) Oh my God. Like how incredible would that be watching an entire bridge crew walk to the bridge and just be like, oh, know what they were doing in the holodeck. (laughs) It's a beautiful way that they just embrace everybody's holodeck usage, you know? Yeah, (laughs) truly. Yeah. <laughs> so Ashlyn, what is your random Star Trek thought of the week? 
Well, during quarantine and during this crazy pandemic, I've started working retail. And at least at my store, it's a really big store. We use headsets to communicate between the employees. And I always feel like a, a crew on the Enterprise or Voyager because I'll call out and be like, oh, there's a man coming to men's Nike who's looking for some shorts, you know, <laughs> but just to help us better serve the customers and to communicate what's going on throughout the store. And so I was thinking about while I was watching Star Trek this week, when they do like Captain to the Bridge or uh, Neelix to the Kitchen or whatever, I assume that you hear these call outs over the entire comm. Like everybody hears, because I don't think they have like earpieces or anything, but, or maybe the sound just comes directly from their communicator. I was thinking about how awkward it would be, like if you got the wrong message or if everybody could hear, you know, like what if it's like, oh, the doctor to Torres, so we can begin your birthing process. And then the whole crew is like, yeah. (laughs) Or something embarrassing, like instant Freeman, you have not shown up for your checkup and your herpes aren't gone (laughs) or something like Exactly. I was just thinking about how hilarious it would be if we heard everybody's calls the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Truly amazing. Love that random Star Trek thought. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. I love this because it's a good chance for us to talk about something that's not family before we jump into the trauma of our crew. (laughs) Yeah, and trauma is right. This crew has been through a lot together and... I found that these episodes were really great to watch in sequence with one another. We posted a suggested watch list for this episode on our social media pages that go through all the episodes we watched in order to make this podcast episode possible. And I wrote down a ton of notes just realizing how many thematic comparisons there are in these episodes of family. Something that I found really heartening about these episodes is that the crew really care about each other's mental health. They really stand up for each other. Even though they have a physical distance from blood family, they will sacrifice anything for each other. And they are a crew as a family, more so than I've ever probably seen on any other crew. And I also found how amazing it is that they just sort of pick up strays along the way, Voyager does, you know, and they add to their family, to their collective. And it just makes me really happy to see how they made a bad situation great as well as they could and how they adapted, (laughs) much like the Borg do, to a horrible situation and embraced it and became a family. I think it shows that we have been watching a lot of Voyager because you just said the word collective as interchangeably with family. <laughs> but it's, it feels right. <laughs> oh no, it totally feels right. And that's why I say we've been watching a lot of Voyager because Voyager does talk about the Borg more than any other show, maybe Picard, probably more than Picard even. But regardless of your familiarity with Borg terms now, I totally agree with you. Especially after going through these family episodes for each series, you really get to understand the dynamic of the cast as actors and the cast as characters more and more and on a very, very deep level. And I a thousand percent agree with you there's a beautiful scene in the episode 1159 where the voyager crew created a new holiday called ancestors eve on april 22nd they take a day to honor their ancestors and honor the people who came before them in their family but they do it all together as one crew and it's 
so rare to see, I guess on a starship especially, Deep Space Nine is a little different because there's a lot of like leisure time, but I think it's so rare for a crew that's on a mission all of the time for them to be hanging out together all in one room when they're not on duty. This crew is so tight that they want to be together all the time. And I think it's so beautiful. And watching these episodes, I mean, obviously, since they're stuck in the Delta Quadrant, there are not a ton of family details, definitely not nearly anything close to even what we got from Golducott in the Space Nine. <laughs> yeah. um, we have way more family information about Golducott than we do about Harry Kim, for sure, even though we know Kim for just as long. And he gets way more screen time. Despite all of that, I think it's made up for in how connected they are as a crew. So thank you for saying that, Rihanna. I am just thrilled to dive into these characters and just see how close they really are. Absolutely. And something that really struck me is this quote that Chakotay says, where he says, home is wherever you have to be. And I think that that is a really good place to start because I think that Chakotay is such an interesting character on this series, someone who we all, I think, sort of grow to love as the show goes on. Not that I really even hated him from the start, but I think that, you know, he's Maquis. It was hard to know if we could trust him in the beginning. But I'm really, really glad that they gave us some episodes where we can really dive into Chakotay's past and see what his father was like and how he sort of relates himself to his home and to his found family on Voyager. Yeah, let's dive into Chakotay. So the biggest thing that strikes me about his character is that he's our Native American representation on this crew which we've never had in Star Trek. I think it is so awesome that a character like him is on there, especially for the time. But what I also love about him is he's more complex than just the normal Native American character. He's actually someone who does not commit to the spirituality of his culture. And that is something that causes a lot of strife between him and his father. We learn in the episode Tattoo that Chakotay only wears his tattoo because he wants to honor his father and his father wore it to honor their ancestors. So in this episode Tattoo, we dive more deeply into his beliefs and he's really challenged because he's grown up basically as an atheist and he's in Starfleet. He joins the Maquis all because of science and because he believes in things that he can see and research. But in this episode, Tattoo, he is really pushed to his limit and he's forced to abandon all of that and just remember what his dad told him when he was growing up. This is fascinating. This dynamic between him and his father, we get in these flashbacks because his father used to take him on these camping trips and used to take these treks to meet distant cousins or distant relatives and to connect and make these bonds of heritage. And Chakotay felt very forced into these situations. He says to his dad, I'm sorry, I can't be what you want me to be. And no one chooses for me, I choose my own way. And if that makes me the contrary, I'll deal with it. Because he's really resisting these ideas that he has a destiny or that he's supposed to talk to the spirits. And also because his dad calls him the contrary because Chakotay when he entered the world, he came in upside down, and that's bad luck in his culture. This is the basis for so much of the rift in the relationship, because his father believes him to be a bad omen from the start. Which is not a very good confidence boost for Chakotay. I mean, if you're constantly called the contrary, someone like Chakotay is just going to lean into that and say, fine, if this is what I have to be, then I will if it means I can make my own way and not follow the cultural heritage that feels forced upon him. And so I find that his journey in this episode, Tattoo, is so beautiful because 
he's learning to embrace his heritage in a way that has something to do with his father, but I think he learns that it's more than that. You know, he meets these aliens who turn out to be distant cousins of his tribe, which is incredible. And he acknowledges that bond of family to them, and he's starting to learn the importance of his heritage because, yes, he's honoring his father, and I think that's a beautiful sentiment, but I think it does go beyond that. I hope one day we get to do a religion series on this podcast. I don't know, maybe in like two years. We're already scheduled out through 2023. So, <laughs> um, Yes. But I would love to explore this more deeply on that type of series. But you're absolutely right. This is a really fascinating discovery that he makes. The fact that he goes to this random planet. It's almost the exact same temperature readings, climate. Everything is so similar to Earth. There's even a bird mm-hmm. up there screeching, but it's so similar to Earth. And then these cousins come out who literally speak the same language. And it's revealed, of course, that these aliens had visited Earth once. And they had gifted Chakotay's ancestors with superior knowledge so they could survive. And the fact that they're still thriving is incredible, despite, uh, you know, the American government killing Mm. all the Native Americans. And then 300 years later, Starfleet trying to move out these same people because Mm -hmm. the Cardassians suddenly own the planet. It's a terrible history that they have to go through over and over and over again. But it's got to be incredibly powerful for Chakotay, much like the prophets with the Bajorans when they discovered that there are prophets in the wormhole. For Chakotay, I feel like discovering that these quote-unquote gods actually exist and they're just a higher being than them, it's got to just change your whole life. Everything his father said was true. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that probably brings him closer to his father in a way that he didn't think was possible. That's just so important because his father's passed at this point, right? Yes. Yeah, his father has passed. And so I think that finding that connection even beyond the grave is just so beautiful and something that's probably helped him have a lot of closure with the turmoil he had with his father for such a long time. Yeah, and we do see in later episodes that he goes on vision quests and he does see his father on these quests. So even though his father is passed on, Chakotay can still access him through these vision quests, which is so, so awesome. Cool. So amazing. Cool. Let's talk a little bit more about Chakotay's father because it's not a terrible relationship, but definitely not the kind of relationship I would want with my dad. He seems very angry that Chakotay does not embrace the ways and it puts him under a lot lot of strain and pressure to stay with the tribe and to not join Starfleet. And he is very much discouraging of him to join Starfleet. Yeah, sounds like another um, Vulcan father we know. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Everything comes back to Sarek. Yeah. (laughs) I see this a lot. I see in Star Trek themes of parents wanting their children to have different paths than they choose and either coming to the conclusion that they to have the right to choose their own destiny versus cracking down harder. And I think that, yeah, his father, it is tough for him to deal with some of those restrictions that his father's putting on him. But I also think that Chakotay wasn't able to see the big picture, understandably. You know, at that point in the flashbacks, he was like a teenager just trying to make his own way. And he wasn't understanding the bigger significance of his culture and everything. And I think that if his father had been 
more willing to guide him in like a more nurturing way, he probably would have been more able to accept his culture and join Starfleet and have more of that balance. But I think that it was kind of on his father for pushing him so hard. I think it was also his father felt a lot of pressure to continue this culture because I mean, it's got to be hard when you're living in the 24th century to continue to do things, quote unquote, the old fashioned way. I think they have electricity in the tribe, but they don't use transporters or more sophisticated weapons or anything like that. And for Chakotay, a man of science through and through, it's so difficult to live like that. And he is just striving for change. I think his dad feels the pressure to continue this way of life and if he's the only one doing it that's much harder for him and once Chakotay leaves I imagine he's mourning not only the fact that his son is in Starfleet but also that his lineage won't continue those traditions that he learned from his grandfather and his grandfather learned from his grandfather and so I think there's a higher hierarchy (laughs) that is at play here with Chakotay's family and it just makes the dynamics difficult. Wow, beautifully said. That was amazing. I completely agree. And I thought we should talk a bit about his grandfather because we hear a little bit about him in the episode The Fight where Chakotay is worried that he's going to end up like his grandfather. He calls him a crazy old man because he was having these hallucinations. He refused treatment. And Chakotay recalls his grandfather saying that his spirit was in pain, but that the wound must be honored. And Chakotay never really understood what that meant or he didn't for quite a while he was afraid to become his grandfather he was afraid to lose his mind didn't he appear in one of his visions yeah yeah he did and his grandfather was totally sane in the vision because of the situation that Chakotay was going through in that episode the fight Chakotay's infected basically an alien they're in this chaotic space the beings who live there are trying to communicate with Chakotay to tell them how to get out of the chaotic space but this starts this huge battle within Chakotay's mind and he even thinks he's Rocky. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> Boothby is literally making a Mickey cameo and Chakotay's boxing. It's basically just Rocky Voyager. Um, Pretty amazing, yeah. But yeah, his grandfather plays a big role in this episode because I think we learned Chakotay's always been afraid of going the same way. And I think his father passed away too early to begin to have any of these symptoms. But I think he says at one point that this disease runs throughout his line. It's a genetic thing. And so Chakotay expects to get it, but doesn't expect it to happen to him so soon. It's also hard for him because it seems like when he was younger, he really admired his grandfather. And I can imagine because he had so much strife between his own father that his grandfather is someone who really understands him more. And so when he's, you know, becoming a teenager and his grandfather's going crazier and crazier, quote unquote, it must have been just devastating for him to see. And It also makes you fear your own future because even though they have all this advanced technology, it doesn't seem like this is something that he'll be able to fight in the future. I also thought it was interesting that his grandfather, as he's dealing with these mental struggles, he refuses to take any medication. Like you mentioned, the wound must be honored. It reminded me also of Cisco's father who refused to take medicine. I think there's, I don't know what it is, but there's something to be said about people who want to bear with their pain and live with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in Chakotay's grandfather's case, he viewed it as a spiritual quest that he was going through. Yeah. And so it's hard to see Chakotay so afraid 
of him losing his mind that he can't even really think of his grandfather in a positive light in this case anymore. We do see Chakotay question if he wants to be a father in basics, but it turns out that Seska did not take his DNA and impregnate herself with it. She chose a Kazon's DNA. Whoops, <laughs> you know. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chakotay really did have father scare for a minute. I he think took he it. handled it well. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the same. He took it in his stride. Yeah. yeah. He does see his father in a vision quest in that episode, and I think it is worth talking about because Chicote basically is trying to decide if he should accept this baby or not because it was created without his consent his DNA quote unquote I mean it you know we just said it doesn't really happen but he believed that his DNA was taken and Seska impregnated herself with it and his father in this vision quest compares it to Native American women who were raped and forced to carry the child to term and raise them as a part of the tribe and how they did not abandon the children. They let them live and they raised them as their own. And he encouraged Chakotay to do the same with this child, even though it's a different situation. It's still a child brought into the world against your will. Yeah. And so I thought it was pretty admirable to hear his father say this. And I love that they're bringing it up on Voyager because that's a very tricky subject to talk about. And I was happy to see them expose it because this is the platform to do it. Absolutely. Um, and I think that would be the right choice. Seska is like a very annoying character, but I could definitely see Chakotay raising that baby aboard Voyager if it had really been his. Oh, absolutely. He would have done everything, I think, to protect that child. Yeah, I believe so. Someone else who loves protecting children <laughs> is Neelix. <laughs> <laughs> he protect and his, uh, woof. He had a rough, rough past as well when it comes to family. Actually, in the episode Jetrell, he meets an old enemy who massacred his people, the scientist who made the Metreon Cascade. I sort of equate this to someone who developed the atomic bomb, like something yes. like that is sort of the analogy I think they were going for. And more than 300,000 were killed. His family was a part of that. At the beginning of this episode, the scientist says he doesn't regret it and of course, Neelix is having a lot of anger, a lot of grief surrounding these events because as the episode unfolds, we start to learn he was away from the planet when it was attacked. The Talaxian planet is called Rhinax. It used to be a paradise planet, but after the attack, it was turned to be a freezing wasteland. His story was that he was on the moon fighting in the army. Yes, that's what it was. Yeah, it turns out that he actually was hiding and didn't want to fight because he didn't believe in the conflict, the war that was going on. He thought that it was inhumane. <laughs> yeah, like not a good war. Wars aren't good. He wasn't ready to fight for something he didn't believe in. And so he carries a lot of guilt from that. And something that I really enjoyed about this episode was the fact that Kess was really such a good sounding board for him during this time of grief. She says to him, maybe you have to stop hating yourself first. And when he told her that he blames himself for the destruction on Rhinax, she tells him that, first of all, it was understandable that you were against the war and that you didn't want to participate. And that guilt should not be on him. You know, he didn't kill all those people. And I think that we do carry around guilt that is sometimes displaced. And I think that it's something that is really hard to reconcile with, but something that probably did help Neelix continue to work through his grief and start to understand better what happened to his family and start to reconcile it. I mean, it doesn't 
bring them back or really take away the pain. But I think Kess did have a good, she has such a good heart. And I think that like she really did show him that it wasn't his fault that his family was dead. You know, I mean, this is not on him. I think that Neelix thinks of himself as a coward and that's the crux of it. And him admitting this to Kess is a big step because once he shares his view of himself, they can both work together to help rectify it. Neelix is not a coward. I could say a lot about Neelix. He's not my favorite character, but I know he's no. not a coward. Absolutely not. I did think it was interesting because in Jet Trail, this episode in season one, it says that Neelix lost his mother, father, and two little brothers in the bomb. But and I'm not laughing because they're dead. I'm laughing because in like season seven later, when Neelix is talking with Naomi, he says he lost his two little sisters in the bomb and does not say anything about brothers. So I think they're confused <laughs> about which family members Neelix lost in the war. They also don't mention his father at all but just his mother and sisters died so i don't know and he says he also sees a picture of alaxia which he never explains who that is and just says that she reminds him of naomi no that's that's his sister okay that's his sister okay so but the the sister that wasn't mentioned before (laughs) why does he have a picture of her and not his other sister or his brother's Well, so I'm looking now at my notes. This was actually the episode he mentions Alexia is in Once Upon a Time in season five, season five, episode five, because Naomi asked him about his family. He lies at first and said his sisters, plural, are a long way away. And then he looks at a picture of Alexia. He tells Naomi he still has nightmares of the Metreon Cascade and he thinks of his dead sister often. So we don't know much. I think what we know about Neelix is that he will carry that event with him forever and he's not okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think his experience with losing his family really informed the way that he raised Naomi or helped to be Naomi's godparent because he didn't really raise her, but he helped a bunch (laughs) in her development on Voyager. Yeah, and I think that he is more inclined to protect her. But, you know, as we see in the episode Once Upon a Time, he chooses to lie to her instead of telling her about her mother being injured, which we'll get more into once we talk more about Naomi. But I do think that that is informed by his fear of losing other family members and something that he also goes through even in the episode Elogium with Kess Mm -hmm. and her early... Yeah. Kess is thrown into puberty but Ocampa's experience puberty generally around the age of, I, I believe, three or four, and Kess mm-hmm. is only two. And so this anomaly accelerates her rate of aging, basically. And when Ocampas go through puberty, that's the only time in their lives that they can have a baby, which explains why their population is so low, because there are not a lot of Ocampa. And it makes sense if they can only mate once per life. So yeah, in this episode, Kess is forced with the decision way too early when she's only two to decide if she wants to have a baby or not. And the only guy around is Neelix, who she would want to have a baby with. And so that is a really interesting episode because we, at this point, it's season two and episode four. So this is pretty early on and I had definitely never thought about Neelix in a fatherly position. One of my favorite parts of that episode is when he talks with Tuvok because Tuvok, which we're going to discuss later in the pod, is a father of four and he has a lot of parenting experience. And Tuvok has a lot of quotes that I love. Um, So many. My favorite one during that speech is, being a father can have infinite rewards, far more than would seem possible. My children occupy most of my thoughts, especially now. 
I, yeah, Rihanna's making a face because she loves Pete Box I'm so like tearing much. up because I love him so much. I had a dream the other day. I named my child Tuvok. But anyway, <laughs> amazing. Well, we have to get off Tuvok. But I love that Neelix, because he goes around to the crew and asks several people for advice about what it would be like to be a father. Because he has to make this decision incredibly quickly because Kess only has a 48-hour window to decide whether they want to make a child or not. I think Neelix goes into it saying he definitely does not. And then he gets his hopes up and decides, yes, I'm going to commit to Kess. I'm going to commit to raising a child. And he says that he's ready. But Kess ultimately flip-flops. She's the other way. She starts out wanting a child. I think probably because she's going through this puberty that your emotions are running so high. I imagine her chemicals are all crazy and she's not used to feeling that driven to procreate. But then after she takes a step back and Neelix says that he does want a child, she totally reverses her position and ends up not going through with it. Yeah, I have a lot of trouble with Neelix's attitude in this episode. Uh, As we mentioned, not a fan of Neelix. (laughs) Um, I'll be not the first to say it, but I am frustrated with his attitude in this episode because Neelix says that she couldn't continue her medical studies if she became a mother, like a mother is the only job you could have. And that really frustrated me because he's placing her into these very strict social roles of females. And that bothers me as well as the fact that he then sort of tries to push the idea onto her saying, oh, this is your only chance. It's kind of reminding me of when men tell women that their biological clock is ticking. It's a thing that I find really frustrating actually throughout the series that a couple men will question why women don't want to have children. And they are always like shocked when they decide not to. We'll get to this. But even Q asked Janeway, you know, like, don't you want kids? So you've got to have kids soon blah, blah, blah. And so I think that it's a continuous assumption that men make for women a lot, that they just assume that they're going to have kids and that it's all they want in their lives. And Kess, I think, is also thrown by his attitude because he's pointing out these things like, you know, he's saying that she can't be a scientist if she wants to be a mother, which is not true. But also she's considering the fact that it will be more difficult to continue my studies if I have a child. And I think that she makes ultimately the best choice for her. And I really like that she doesn't compromise herself for Neelix's sake or for the sake of just assuming a role that people put onto her. You know, I think that it's a brilliant choice. And also, can I just say that Tuvok also tells Neelix off for assuming that you teach your son other things that you don't teach your daughters. He's challenging gender roles. He's challenging ways that children are raised. I love that Tuvok is a kind of father who will teach to each child regardless of their gender because it shows that, you know, first of all, he's progressive and he's thinking about these things not in terms of gender, but in terms of child rearing. And it's just, Neelix has a lot to learn, I think, about women and society. And I think that it's really great that Kess does ultimately make this decision for herself. And I love that Janeway is so supportive with her either way. Janeway is essentially very pro-choice, very very much like you should do what you think is best for yourself. This is your body, your decision to have a baby or not. Yeah, beautifully said. Beautifully said. I agree with everything you brought up, especially Tuvok's quote about teaching children the same thing regardless of gender. 
I think that Neelix is a character in Voyager who's supposed to be not as woke as yeah. everybody else, and he becomes more woke the the more time he spends with them. Mm-hmm. And you really see it. I, I mean, it's really laid bare in this episode. And I just feel so bad for Kess because, I mean, she's known her whole life that once she goes through this process that she'll have a baby but she's planning for when she's older and she decided to leave the Okampa leave her people with Neelix so she's committed to him but they are definitely not ready to have a child together also because she's too young and there are medical complications anyway if she does go through it one quote I love from Cass that she ends up saying at the end of the episode is maybe I just felt like I should have a child because I can Mm. and love that quote Yeah, yeah. I think it just says something about the pressure that we face as women that even though we have this amazing ability to give birth to a child doesn't mean we have to use it. And I love that they're bringing it up. Kes talks about her father a couple of times in this episode and mentions how much she misses him because there are certain rituals that they go through as a family. So normally when an Okamba goes into puberty, her father would be massaging her feet and would be helping her through this process. And that is how they bond and become even closer because it's a symbol of the relationship changing from father to daughter to grandfather to mother to child and they become friends and they become closer than ever and so Kess is really regretting her decision to leave at this point I don't think that means she would want to change her life and go back to live with the Okampa but I think she's definitely sad to not have her family around, which is understandable. I mean, I think if maybe she had known, you know, if this was a couple years in the future, I think she might have returned home like the salmon. (laughs) 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 But I don't want to say that Kes is a fish. There are a lot of species that end up going home for procreation, like literally the Vulcans. I really felt for Kes this episode because she's going through so many changes and yet she's still able to have a clear head and make a good, smart decision, in my opinion by the end of this episode and i think it's also because of the support of her crew like i mean janeway is the mother she's the captain she's taking care of everybody on her crew the doctor is an invaluable resource for Kess. they develop such a close relationship and at the end of this episode he ends up rubbing her feet and is taking care of her the whole episode and i really think that she views him as a father and i think it just shows more that even though there's not a lot of family around on this crew they have people who are willing to act as family and i think that's the nature of voyager is they know they're stuck on this ship for a really long time and so they're asked to fulfill roles that is not normal for a starfleet vessel but they're lonely and they need each other and i think this episode is a fantastic one on all fronts. It shows the issues going on between Elix and Kess. It also shows that um, Samantha Wildman is pregnant and the crew is starting to couple up. We see a couple making on the turbo lift. Janeway and Chakotay are really heavily flirting in this episode. Mm-hmm. And Wildman comes in and says at the end that she's pregnant with Naomi. Yes. Yeah, I think this episode really demonstrates just how supportive they are to each other. And I love to see it. I love to see it too. I want to say one more thing before we jump to Naomi that we see a very different dynamic between Kess, who chose to leave her family, versus the rest of the Voyager crew who was forced to be distanced from their family. And I think it does make a difference in their reactions to family. 
it's just interesting because, you know, we're in the middle of unprecedented times. <laughs> we're in the, you know, we're in this pandemic where some people are forced to be away from their families and some people are choosing to be with their families or some people sadly feel forced to be with their families if it's a toxic environment or what have you. And so I think that Voyager is really representing a lot of these difficult dynamics that we are all going through right now. And it can really speak to us in that way. And I think that Kess's decision not to have a child and to remain, you know, traveling, I think it shows her strength, but it also shows the difference that she was able to choose to make that choice to leave her family versus being forced to. I totally agree. I also think it's lucky in the plot, we find out at the very end that she will go through this puberty process again and none of it really mattered. But I think the fact that she had to think through all of this and kind of be prepared before her time it was important. And I think when she comes around to puberty later, it's going to be to her benefit that she's thought all this through and that she won't be with Neelix for yes. round two. <laughs> oh, thank the Lord. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking about what if I had been forced into that situation when I was in high school and forced to mate with whoever rando I was dating, it just would not have worked out. So I'm just glad that she does not stay with Neelix. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk about Naomi. So yes. sweet. So love pure. that girl. Love yes. her. I love her addition to the crew. I also enjoy how many episodes she appears in. She feels like a consistent part of this crew. She has the most appearances beside the main crew. Out of any guest star, she appears in the most episodes. That's really cool. Even more than like Garrick or Gold Ducat. Oh, I'm just saying in Voyager. Oh, oh got you. Yeah. Still, yeah. that's neat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you said, Ashlyn, Samantha Wildman has a husband on Deep Space Nine and she got pregnant before she left, turns out, or she didn't know. Yeah, she um, didn't know she was pregnant and she left to join Voyager, which she thought was just going to be for a couple yeah. weeks. Quick little mission. And she says to Janeway in the episode, Persistence of Vision, it's all I have left of my husband, she says about her child. And that just breaks me a little. It makes me think how horrible that situation would be to not even be able to tell your husband that you're pregnant, first of all, and then to have the baby alone and to raise the child alone in what you assume is going to be a 70-year mission back. And that was their confirmed time before they found all these shortcuts. Sure, they were cutting off years as they could. Yeah, ETA is 70 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so... I think that that is going to be really difficult in and of itself without a child on the way. And I just wonder how she feels about having this child, if she feels any resentment or if she feels like a gift to her. I don't know. We don't get to see a lot of Samantha Wildman in this show. We only see her in a couple episodes, but I just wonder like how Ashlyn, you would feel about this situation. Oh God, I would feel exactly like Samantha. I would definitely have that baby and I would cherish it like nobody's business because you just lost everything. I mean, you're likely not going to see your parents again or your husband or anyone else except this crew for the rest of your life. Worst case scenario, you know, maybe best case scenario because it's just such a hopeless situation. But I would definitely have the baby and it would be so hard and there are scenes like when she's giving birth, you know, there's no one around to help her and she's a single mom on this crew. And so I think 
the fact that Neelix inserts himself and plays the role of godfather for Naomi is really special. And I think also Janeway, I mean, I'm going to say it a thousand times during this pod, but Janeway is the mother. Just because she's a female, I don't want to force her into this. Basically, I wouldn't call her a mother if I didn't see it. I call it as I see it because Janeway, as soon as she learned that Ensign Wildman is pregnant, she goes to her and she asks, are you okay? How can I help? What can we do? And Janeway is so personal with every member of her crew. If she notices someone's having a hard day, she's going to invite them to her quarters for dinner. We see that this is not a joke. This is not like a one-time situation. She does this all the time. She meets them at their level. And so before I could just completely destroy the pod and talk about Janeway for the next hour, (laughs) I think that it's important for Ensign Wildman to feel that support from her captain because, I mean, it gives her reassurance. Like, I can do this. I can get through this pregnancy without my family. I'm going to rely on Voyager and they're going to come through for me. There's a really interesting conversation that Janeway and Chakotay have when they learn that the crew is kind of coupling up. This is also an elogium. They talk about the possibility of having a generation ship. And I just wanted to bring it up because it is a family episode. And yeah. I mean, we've seen generation ships a lot in Star Trek. And the fact that this crew, this mix of Maquis and Federation plus stragglers from the Delta Quadrant, the fact that they're considering the idea of a generational ship where children will be born on Voyager. That's all they're going to know. Naomi, as she grows up, And as we see them get closer and closer to Earth, she does not care about getting home because Voyagers are home and Naomi doesn't want to leave it. And so as Chakotay and Janeway are considering that possibility, it's a very daunting one because how do you restrict officers from hooking up? You you can't. That's not ethical. But Janeway knows that she's going to have to deal with these stressors of, well, what if these people make a family together and they break up? Or (laughs) do we train the children to be in Starfleet? How do we run this ship if it's all just going to end up being families who are hooking up and becoming close together? I mean, we're going to see Tom and Bolana have a baby. I just think it's a fascinating insight into what would happen if a crew really stayed together for that long. Naomi is the first baby born on Voyager, and she really is a member of the crew. She's incredibly smart. She is very inquisitive. She puts together an escape plan for Seven of Nine. She learns so much and she's such an important part of this crew. That whole conversation with Janeway and Dakota about a generation ship is fascinating to me because they've never expected that. Yeah, it's essentially two parents talking about how they just adopted 200 kids. Yeah. <laughs> like, how are we going to raise these kiddos? <laughs> I do completely agree with that. And it is such a tough situation. And something I find that I kind of forget about, even though we did just watch these episodes, in the episode Deadlock, where Naomi is born, she's actually from another timeline, and so is Harry Kim. And so this is boggling to me. Ashlyn, the resident Starfleet engineer, I can't exactly remember how this whole craziness began, but can you explain a little bit? Because Naomi, in the first timeline, didn't make it. She didn't survive. Yeah, this is a fascinating episode, not even from a family perspective. I love this one. This is one of my favorite ones. Season two is really clutch. I kind of had forgotten. But basically, 
the ship runs into some anomaly in space and then Voyager is split into two and one ship is out of phase with the other, but they're still in the same reality. They just can't see each other. So when other ships scan Voyager, they see two Voyagers, but one is kind of in reality and the other one kind of isn't. Um, it's all messed up. And Janeway has visions of herself like walking through the bridge, like looking terrible and she sees fire. They're really confused about what's going on. Yeah, I don't know what the monster of the week is for this episode. <laughs> Basically, they're being pursued by aliens that will take them. It might be the ones that take the organs. I hate those guys. I think it is. It is. It is. But essentially, the two Janeways are playing a game of who's going to self-destruct to save the other ship. In one Voyager, Harry Kim and the infant Naomi dies during birth because of the attack of these organ species. In another reality, everybody's fine. Everybody's chilling on Voyager. And the species who is coming to take the organs are boarding Voyager. And Janeway says, we have to destroy the ship. And the other one who has lost Harry and Naomi must continue. So she sends Naomi and Harry through the rift, basically, in this anomaly. And the healthy crew who's about to have their organs taken self-destructs so the reality that we live with for the rest of voyager so for the next five seasons is this crew that had lost their original harry and their original naomi so it's very complicated (laughs) but we have to remember that these are not the original ones these are copies which is just wow like space (laughs) What what a world to be born into i think for i wonder if Samantha Wildman ever told her daughter about her the story of her birth. I just find that to be super fascinating and scary. And I think Janeway does speak of some regrets about having Naomi even be born on a ship that's so dangerous. And she's worried about what her life is going to look like being raised here in these high pressure situations. And can we also say that practically every Star Trek baby is born into a high pressure situation? So, I mean, uh, it's kind of her- hard to avoid. Tom and Bolana, yeah. Herself yeah. in the 2009 timeline. I mean, there's yeah. so many, even just in Voyager, but and also like a million more in the Star Trek canon. It's just a trope, I guess. But oh my gosh, her baby dies, but then is given back to her. Ouch. Like, I just can't imagine that pain, you know? I mean, ouch is a very <laughs> mild way of saying it, but like, ugh, like that would be very difficult to come to terms with. But I think I would honestly just be so effing relieved that I had a kid and that she survived. I mean, we just talked about how Samantha views Naomi as her link to Earth and her link to family. And I think if she had lost the baby, it would have just been devastating. I mean, losing a baby, no matter when you lose the baby, is devastating. But especially when you're so isolated already, I just can't imagine. And what a hero Harry Kim must have looked like coming through that void (laughs) with a little infant, which I have to say, the only reason that infant survived the organ takers is because the doctor hid behind his bio bed and he hid the infant from the species. And I thought it was a really heroic scene to witness. I mean, the doctor is someone who I have a complicated relationship with because he's so annoying in the beginning. Yeah. But I just really, really like him by the time this series ends. And he has such a fantastic development throughout the show that when I see the doctor hiding the infant 
from this hostile species, it really, it just does something to me. It's reminiscent of war scenes, you know? Voyager is really going through so much, but it's all thanks to the Doctor and thanks to Harry for saving Naomi. Truly. I also love at the end of that episode because Harry is kind of weirded out. He's like, this is not my crew. Like, it's a copy of the crew, but it's not the crew I started out with. And Janeway just says, we're Starfleet officers. Weird is part of the job. (laughs) (laughs) That's the most Janeway response. I think that, like, maybe Picard would have been like, yes, that's something you have to come to terms with. And Kirk would just be like, another day of the fleet. Yeah, or something. (laughs) I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, that's so Janeway. She is just like, we're forging ahead no matter what. And you best get on with it yeah (laughs) that episode is so fantastic and i thought we could also talk about uh, the episode once upon a time and we talked a bit about this in the neelix section samantha wildman is on a mission and their shuttle has been crippled and they're buried under this bunch of rock on this planet she's with uh tom and tuvok tuvok yeah tom and tuvok And they're pretty sure they're going to die. And Naomi is completely lied to by Neelix. For the former half of the episode, he is making up excuses, saying the mission's taking longer than normal. But as you said, Ashlyn, Naomi's a smart girl. Like, she's starting to pick up on that things aren't as they seem to be. And Janeway really pushes Neelix to tell the truth because it's not a good way for her to find out if, like, she finds out her mom's dead later on from someone else that's not Neelix, which... Granted, her mom doesn't actually end up dying, but it's a really close call. And I just think that it's not very responsible of Neelix, but we also talked about his past. And I think that it comes from that guilt he has of his family's death and also just worry of making her feel the way he feels, you know, and he admits that to her. I think it's good that he finally goes and tells her, but he pretty much needs Janeway's like very tough hand to do so. And I'm just wondering, what would you have done in that situation? I think I would have been honest with her, like Janeway's suggesting to do. To not tell her the truth, I think is disrespectful. She is so intelligent and I think she's also emotionally intelligent because of all the time she spends among adults. She's not growing up with any kids and that's hard. It's hard to not have anyone around to relate to. And so she has time on the holodeck and she plays with Otter and Flotter or whatever. Um, <laughs> and so Flotter's hella dead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's so dark. Yeah, as Neelix says, that sounds like a scary one. Yeah. <laughs> I think Naomi can take the truth and she knows what kind of ship she's on. I mean, this is not news to her that Voyager is a dangerous ship. It is no place for a child. Neelix says it, Janeway says it, but that's how it is. That's reality is that Naomi's growing up on this ship and we're going to get some more bored kids coming soon. <laughs> I think just be honest with them. And I think children, even though it seems like you don't want to put that burden on them, a lot of the times you don't. I think in this situation where it affects her life so much, you have to be honest with her. I think Janeway really is Aunt Kathy in this episode as well. She pushes Neelix to be honest with her, and she is kind of watching Naomi throughout the episode, seeing how she's doing. Luckily, thank God, Samantha survives. I had somehow thought that Samantha died, so I was very happy to see that she was alive. Yeah, me too. 
she makes it, we get a really sad goodbye scene where the three of them make their goodbye videos to their loved ones. Uh, Tuvok writes his down because he prefers to write letters than do a video. I think we see more about Neelix in this episode than we do about Naomi because he does not want her to grow up the same way he did without a family. And he lets his fears take over and he transfers them onto Naomi. But she's stronger than anybody thinks. And so I think it's beautiful when he does finally decide to trust her with that information and they get through it together and it it all turns out okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I'm really glad it turned out okay. do wish that he had more respect for Naomi, but I think in that situation, he does learn. He's like, oh, I'm dealing with a kid who is very intelligent, who had to grow up pretty fast and she can take this. And I, I think that he is a better godfather for it. I think that while Neelix is a great parental role for Naomi, someone else who really shines in this role is my favorite Borg, Seven of Nine, possibly one of my favorite characters. She is someone who you would not assume would be a good mother figure or in a parental role, and yet she shines in these roles over and over again. I love her interactions with Naomi. I think that she treats her like an adult, but also still recognizes that she's a child and needs to have fun and the fun will now commence. <laughs> I mean, that's what she says to her bored kids, but you know. Yes. The, <laughs> the best quote. <laughs> Truly, I just, I am so inspired by the way that Seven of Nine takes everything in stride. I mean, she has gone through probably more than anyone can understand And yet she is still in the capacity to help children around her and to raise them to be incredible individuals. And I just can't wait to talk about Seven of Nine. Then let's do it. Let's talk about her. I think that she is such a great friend for Naomi because they're kind of, I mean, in a very removed way, they're kind of going through the same experience. When Seven was removed from the Borg and is transitioning into being an individual, she's kind of like a child. She's relearning everything about being a human for the first time. And I mean, we're going to definitely talk about this now because we're we're on the Borg. But I think when she is assimilated, and let's call her who she is, Annika Hansen, Seven of Nine, her human name is Annika Hansen. When she was assimilated, it was on her seventh birthday and i kind of think that whenever you're assimilated once you're an individual again you kind of revert back to everything that you knew when you were a kid and even though seven has definitely matured and she's a functioning adult i think her mental constructs are childlike and she's very innocent despite having like assimilated thousands of species and so i think her friendship with naomi is kind of a kinship because they're both experiencing the world together they're both going through similar phases of exploration and I think it's a beautiful relationship and I'm so glad that they have each other. Yeah, absolutely. There's an episode called Bliss where it's kind of like a fake out where they think they're going to go home, which is uh, a lot of the Voyager episodes. And Naomi says at one point, Voyager is my home. And I think that you're absolutely right. The Seven resonates really strongly with that because it was the first place since she was a child where she feels welcomed and loved and cared for as an individual and not a part of a collective that is like pretty much slavery, you know? And so I think that 
she grows so much under the care and love of her found family of the crew of Voyager, including Janeway. Uh, again, gonna just rave about amazing Janeway, you know, and the doctor. I think they both help her to grow significantly. But Naomi is another force that helps her to understand how it can be fun to do things and how you can enjoy your work or how you can enjoy exploring the galaxies or whatever. You know, I think that Naomi does bring a little bit of that childlike sense of wonder. She instills it into the crew, but I think Seven really takes that in and understands that a little bit more when it comes from Naomi. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I thought we could talk a little bit about the episode Drone. This episode I found extremely similar to The Offspring in the next generation where data creates his daughter lol and also like iborg another wonderful next generation episode so this guy his name is one oh, <laughs> that I he ends up that. choosing his name is drone <laughs> he was never a borg in the first place basically seven's technology goes rogue on her mm-hmm. and is trying to procreate because the technology thinks it's alone and wants to make new Borg. And so instead of assimilating a culture, it takes Seven's DNA and DNA from a random crewman and creates a baby who has the Borg nanoprobes. But the doctor's mobile emitter gets stuck in this creation. And that's how the Borg, this drone, one, has technology from the 29th century. And so that makes him incredibly dangerous. Because if he's assimilated, that means the Borg are going to basically destroy the universe because they'll be so powerful. So it's very, very high stakes. But Seven is choosing to raise this child as her own. And he develops into an adult in like a day, I believe. Yeah. So she doesn't really get the chance to experience childhood with him. Mm -hmm. But he's so innocent and so willing to absorb new knowledge that he looks at her as a mother and he looks at the crew as his family. It's very similar to Lull. I really was thinking about that episode a lot from The Next Generation. I really liked the emotional depth that this episode goes into where one, the Borg drone is discovering his individuality, but he's also wondering if he's unwelcome on the ship. He's getting a lot of stares. You know, a lot of people are not happy about having another Borg drone on the ship. He gets into Blana's good books and Seven is very proud of him. I think that we do see this for the first time, Seven getting to experience what it's like to have a child, but it's so short-lived, which is so tragic because he is making a sacrifice. He says, while I exist, you are in danger. And there's this moment in the beginning of the episode where one is like gripping seven really tight and she goes like, you are hurting me. And that's when he starts to develop empathy and starts to understand like, oh, I do not want to hurt. And so then there's an amazing and horrible, tragic parallel at the end of this episode where one is about to sacrifice himself and Seven says, you are hurting me. And one goes, you will adapt. I just, oh, it kills me because it's something that Seven got to experience so fleetingly. And I mean, I think it probably just like Data, it leaves this impact in her for the rest of her life, you know, thinking about this Borg drone that technically should never have existed. Like this should not have been created. But I think that Seven is better for it and got to experience those feelings of true attachment and love to another creature who was like her child. And it's just an important moment for her, but also so tragic. Like she's experiencing 
grief again. She's experiencing loss when she's already gone through so much of that with remembering her parents, you know, as they were assimilated. Yeah, I think that in hindsight, this is definitely a precursor to her having the Borg children. And this is kind of her training as a mother. In the moment, though, it is so tragic. And while Rihanna was describing that scene of you are hurting me, I had my head in my hands. (laughs) That episode really wrecks me because in the course of a day, pretty much, or maybe a couple days, the Borg drone starts as a kid. He can only speak in programmed sentences. He does not understand what people are saying unless Seven kind of like Borg melds with him. And he's walking around the ship, interacting with the crew, and he just blossoms in these few days. Without that experience, Seven would not have been able to care for the Borg children that she picks up in the episode collective. And this is a season apart, these two interactions. Briefly, we should also talk about, just before we move on to the children, let's talk about her childhood, quote unquote. Yes. (laughs) Because... Annika's parents, everyone thought they were crazy because they wanted to research the Borg. And so they left Earth in a shuttle with their daughter and went out into the world to track the Borg and to study them. And they created a dampener field so like the Borg wouldn't see them. They could be on Borg cubes just observing them or taking them back to study. And so as a result, Annika was raised totally isolated from the world. I don't know how long she was on this ship before they were assimilated but i think maybe two years we know that so she's probably doesn't remember too much of earth before this so her memories mostly consist of being raised in the shuttle with her parents just obsessed with the borg and in the episode dark frontier we see a lot of flashbacks of annika as a child feeling really left out and just afraid all the time because her parents are so obsessive with their research on the Borg that I think really safety and everything else kind of goes out the window. Yeah, I think it's very telling in the beginning of this episode that Seven has had these log entries of her parents for months and she hasn't read any of them or studied them because I think she is sort of scared of what she'll find. She's scared of opening those old wounds. And as well as she says, my parents were assimilated. Obviously, their tactics were flawed. And so she has a lot of resentment towards her parents. She calls them misguided. She also says to the doctor, my parents underestimated the collective. They were destroyed. Because of their arrogance, I was raised by the Borg. And I think that that is a really hard thing to reconcile with yourself because she does actually end up seeing her parents like in Borg form, or at least sees her father when she's aboard with the Borg queen when she gets captured. And I just, there's like so many horrible memories being continuously brought up for her. And I know that Janeway says she's worried about pushing Seven too fast, but Seven is their largest resource. She's obviously so familiar with the collective, not only because of being a part of the Borg collective for so long, but also because her parents studied them for so long. And I just do find it really troubling how obsessive her parents were over the Borg. I mean, it's, of course, great to be enjoying your research, but not to the point where you are isolating your child, you are making them fearful for their life every day. They are on this deep space mission. They're completely cut off from everyone. I mean, they said that even if they returned, they would be kind of scorned by Starfleet and by their peers because they went on this crazy mission to study the Borg. And and there's these flashbacks of her learning about the Borg Queen. 
And just the fact that then she became a part of the Borg because of what she feels are her parents' flawed tactics. I don't even know how I would begin to reconcile those feelings or to even forgive my parents because at this point they're living a worse life because they're still assimilated. But I don't know. It's just, it's really tough. I can't even imagine the kind of guilt she puts on herself and she puts on her parents. I mean, her parents obviously could have been way better at raising her, but also once the Borg choose to assimilate you, unless you're the crew of Voyager, it's pretty almost impossible that you're going to survive and you're not going to be assimilated. So in that sense, I don't blame her parents, but I completely understand why she does and why she's so resentful towards even beginning to read the logs. And then when she does, she doesn't even understand why her parents would do something like this. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I also just want to add that one interesting parallel in this episode. So this is after First Contact. So aside from the movie with, with the Next Generation cast, we have not seen a Borg queen in the flesh yet in the episodic way. I think a fascinating parallel we have is Janeway does mention, you've already said, that she's worried about pushing Seven too far and pushing her too fast while she's dealing with all of the emotional trauma that's coming up because of the Borg. So then at the end of the episode, when Seven meets the Borg Queen, the Borg Queen also says to Seven, I don't want to push you too fast. Mm. And I think that kind of reveals that we have two key players that are manipulating Seven. Janeway is trying to help her. Obviously, the Borg Queen is not. But I think it's got to be a little creepy for Seven because all her life, you know, especially since she's left the collective, she's looking for guidance and she's looking for a family. And Yet again, there's this pull and she even leaves Voyager for a short time. Naomi Wildman is the one who is trying to create a plan to save her. Janeway does not want to give up on her, but Seven is so confused and so lost. And the first sign of a Borg showing compassion towards her, she wants to join up immediately because it's safe and because she thinks it'll be smarter and just to live with the order of the Borg is better than to live with the fear of staying with Voyager and she's going to have to work through her emotions if she stays on Voyager. That sounds hard. Um, So I can't blame her for making that choice. I just thought it was kind of an eerie connection between the Borg Queen and Janeway because they both view Seven as a valuable person, but just for different reasons. Yeah, Um, that is such a creepy connection. I didn't even thought of that. And then the Borg Queen uses further manipulation at the end when her father does appear. Magnus, Magnus Hansen appears as a Borg. Terrifying. I think Seven holds a lot of anger for her parents and she knows it's like you said, their arrogance is what made her this life. Despite all of this, you know, everything we've talked about, the emotional damage to Seven, the Hansons have very, very extensive knowledge on the Borg. And I don't want to say it was worth it. I mean, there's no way it was worth it. All the information they got for, for their lives and for Sevens, there's no way it was worth it. But it is valuable, the research that they got. And I personally just can't think of a situation where my research would be more important than my own life. But that's Starfleet. That's what they go through every day. And that's what Janeway is doing. She's constantly putting the lives of others above her own crew and above herself. And so... I just think it's a very interesting situation with Seven. And let's talk about the kids. Yes, I am obsessed with these children. I think that they're amazing. They're such a fun addition. We find that there is a Borg cube in the episode Collective that has been abandoned by the Borg Collective because there's only five Borg teenagers, (laughs) let's say. 
and the Borg Collective deemed them unworthy to go and pick up because there's only a couple left. The maturation chamber is malfunctioning for all the infants and all of them have died except one. Right. Okay. Yeah. So essentially the Borg abandoned them and it takes a while because these Borg children take a couple of the Voyager crew hostage and it takes a while for them to truly comprehend the fact that they've been abandoned by their collective, by their family, uh, Borg family. (laughs) And Seven decides that she wants to take them under her wing and she ends up taking four Borg children back to Voyager with her, Ichib, Mazadi, Azan, and Rebai. Azan and Rebai are the two twins, and Ichib's the eldest of the group, and Mazadi is this adorable, intelligent girl who they all join together. They all have their own (laughs) chamber where they can regenerate, and I just love the fact that (laughs) Seven is like, oops, I accidentally adopted four children. I guess this is my life now. (laughs) And I don't know. I just think that they're all so special and so important to this crew and important to the way that people on Voyager look at the Borg. And I think that maybe a lot of people had a lot of reservations about Seven of Nine, much less four other Borg children. But I think that because the crew is so close, they began to embrace them. They had a science fair for them. In the episode Child's Play, Seven is glowing with pride for her children. I mean, she loves these children but she also is having trouble connecting with them and understanding the kind of human needs that they have she is very good at assisting with their org needs she's good at telling them when they need to regenerate she helps them if they have a nightmare she's like go back to bed (laughs) essentially go back to your regeneration chamber everything's fine but she is lacking in these humanoid behaviors you know like what they need to have fun and to be kids because she's never had fun or been a kid. You know, she hasn't, doesn't have that experience. And I do love the fact that the crew comes together to also help seven to raise these kids. Like they tell her she's not alone. Obviously she's taking point on helping these kids grow. I think it's interesting because Seven wants to give it up. At one point, Chakotay comes to her and asks how it's going, and she says she would like to be removed from the project, and she doesn't want to be their parents anymore. Chakotay totally refuses and says, this is your problem. You committed to this, so you're going to continue with it. You have to adapt, basically. Yeah. And I think that was smart of Chakotay. Obviously, no one's going to leave these kids out to dry if something really goes wrong, but I think it's good to push Seven into rethinking how she's going to structure their day and how they're going to interact. There's a really great scene where Seven schedules playtime for them. She lets them play a game for an hour with Naomi. Naomi and Mizadi are just besties and they're super cute. But of course, the twins are using their Borg parts to communicate with each other to cheat during the game. Everybody's angry. (laughs) It's a cute little scene. We also see during these episodes that Seven gets really close with Ichib. In the episode Child's Play, we learned that Voyager has located Ichib's real parents And the objective with all these Borg kids was that they were going to locate their parents and send them home. So we knew this was going to happen, but Seven was not prepared and neither was Egypt 
for them to locate their parents so soon. Honestly, I really thought it was the right thing to do. There's a question of, you know, Seven's really fighting. Do we leave Egypt on this planet with his parents? She's worried like, oh, he won't be able to study the stars and he won't be able to see me anymore. And he's going to have a worse life if he stays with his parents. But as Egypt is getting to know his true family and get to know the culture that he's from, he fits right in and he really loves it, even though they have less technology. It's definitely a home for him. And so what's then so tragic is that we find out his parents never wanted him in the first place. And his genes were manipulated at birth to be a disease for the Borg. So there was never a plan for him to grow up as part of this culture. They wanted to give birth to him, send him out to a shuttle to be assimilated, and to murder millions of Borgs. And this plan worked the first time. This is how these children were on this Borg cube totally alone because this pathogen killed all the adult Borgs, but not these couple children who were in their chambers. I mean, this is a devastating blow because Echip, I think he understands his parents because he's become close with them over this episode. And he's, I think, fine with being bred to kill Borg essentially, is what he ends up saying about himself. And because he's gotten so close with his parents over this time, I think he's blinded by their reality. And he wants to go and be assimilated so he can kill more Borg. It's really messed up. (laughs) And luckily, Seven has discovered this in time because she was paranoid and worried about leaving him with these people. She's discovering it. They get Egypt in time before he is assimilated. But I mean, they really tricked me. I really like these parents. And then when we find out that they're just murdered it's devastating and I can't even imagine what Egypt and Seven are going through yeah I found the parents to be like I didn't fully think they were going to be like full-fledged murderers but I thought that they weren't being patient with Egypt's transition I think I was more on Seven's side of they seem very eager to have him back but just not in the way that I would expect parents to see their son after him coming back from being assimilated by the Borg from this hugely traumatic experience. And granted, at first I was like, oh, they're probably just as nervous and scared of hurting him more or, you know, triggering something within him. And so I sort of wrote it off as that. But yeah, I did not see that twist coming. And it's awful. And it's something that I think Ichib even feels guilty about because he talks to Seven at the end of this episode and he said he feels like he failed them and that he should have been reassimilated and that it should have been his destiny. And Seven says to him, maybe it was your destiny, but you'll do it in your own way. You are an individual and you have the right to determine your own destiny. And so again, just love Seven in this role as a parent. And even Janeway tells Seven to use your maternal instincts. They worked before. And so Janeway sees that within her too. She says, you are capable of understanding this child's needs more than even their parents are because that's the thing that we're seeing over and over again in these Voyager episodes is that this Voyager family has grown to know each other so well that I think it's so great that they trust Seven's instincts of saying like these stories don't match up like we have to go back and figure out what's going on with each of his parents before we truly leave him with them. And this also resonates strongly with Seven, I think, this situation, because she says to Egypt's parents, anyone who values their own goals over the safety of their children is irresponsible. And so she tells Janeway, I cannot be objective about this because my parents didn't value my safety 
And, you know, as we talked about her resentment towards her parents does travel on into her resentment of each of his parents. But I think that in this case, she did have the right instinct. She did have the mama claws. She was ready to defend her child. I just also found it interesting that the doctor says to Ichib on his final checkup before he goes to see his parents, your parents can nurture you in ways this crew can't. And I wrote down on my notes, I beg to differ. I think that this crew has nurtured Ichib more than, obviously, we find out more than his parents ever had. And I think that's very important to know is that it doesn't have to always be your blood parents who will be there for you. And Seven is a great example of that. She is there for him regardless of them being not at all related. Yeah, I do think though the doctor had a point. I mean, I think when you're with your blood related family members and you've never been with them before, I think there's something special about realizing, oh, this is why I stutter or this is why I walk like this or this is why I'm always angry in these situations. It's because of my parents. It's it's because of my genetics. And I think that was special for Ichip to be with his culture for a couple of days because he enjoyed playing games with them. He figured out he actually is quite knowledgeable about genetics, even though it was a field he formerly didn't have any interest in because of his parents' expertise. He has that as well and has a knack for it. I think it's great that he gave it a shot. And it's just tragic that it turned out this way. What a heart-gripping episode. <laughs> Truly. Let's talk about the doctor, though, because I like his advice in this one. And I mean, it's kind of amazing that he's even able to give family advice. And this is a long arc that the doctor has of him discovering his own humanity. There's a lot to be said about holographic rights and holograms in this show. Photons be free. (laughs) There's one episode in particular. We're not going to be talking about Zimmerman, who the doctor is modeled after. We won't talk about his family. But specifically, we're going to talk about the episode where the doctor creates his own family, his own holographic family, real life in season three. Basically, the doctor, and this is something I really admire about him that I kind of missed my first times watching through Voyager, is that he's constantly improving himself. In that way, he is very human. Whenever he comes upon a species that he doesn't recognize, he immediately downloads it and studies it and if the crew's going through any kind of minor turmoil, he will do as much research as possible to get them through it. And even though he can be kind of standoffish and have a hard shell around his personality, he is very, very thoughtful about what the crew is going through. And so in this episode, Real Life, he chooses to create his own family. And his initial creation is very unrealistic. It's kind of a 50s typesetting where the mom is perfect and she has dinner ready and she doesn't work and the kids are smiling and happy and everything's rosy and the doctor comes home he doesn't have to do a thing you know he makes a lot of money it's just unrealistic and he invites Kess and Bolana over for dinner they point this out and so they introduce some changes into the subroutine so the characters will have random personality fluctuations to make it seem more realistic So this is what we see the Doctor going through in this episode. And man, once again, Voyager has a way of just taking something so innocent and funny and just punching you in the face with it. (laughs) Yeah, in the face, the gut, wherever they can hit you, they will. (laughs) I did also see a 50s-esque correlation to the beginning of this episode where it was the white picket fence, the nuclear family, that's what it's called. Nuclear family, yeah. The kids are clamoring to be the one to say hello to their father first, and his wife is built only to please him and have all cares of the day disappear. And 
I do love Bellotta's reaction to this family because she is not amused about what he created. She knows all too well, which we're going to talk about Bellotta's family soon, but like she knows all too well that families don't function in this way. And she says, you're not going to learn anything from being with these lollipops. <laughs> so I love that she does want the doctor to experience real family. I think she's also helping him to grow, even if he doesn't necessarily want that in the moment. She's like, this is what it's like to be a humanoid or to experience these sort of like human connections that he's hoping for. And I do like that the crew also helps him to improve. It's just funny because when Bellana adds the randomized behavior algorithms, the doctor's so confident. He says, I can't imagine a parenting problem I can't handle. <laughs> so he does have a lot of parenting problems that he cannot handle at first. Yes. His family's really interesting because once the behavior fluctuations are introduced, his son is going through a Klingon phase where he listens to Klingon music only. He only hangs out with Klingon friends, which is very jarring to the doctor. And he does not want him to be involved in this because he thinks that the Klingons are going to be violent and are going to encourage him to be doing violent things, which like I have a problem with right off the bat. We do learn that the son is rebelling because he is misunderstood by his family. And so he wants to hang out with Klingons to rebel. And he is planning this violent ritual with these Klingons, which is just a bad choice. And and so it's hard to see the doctor struggle with these things. We see him also talking to his daughter and she, I can't remember what game she's playing. I, something like volleyball or she's she has to be on the second team because the doctor thinks he can fix everything by just fixing their schedule which is like so single-minded you know <laughs> the mother is upset because in this reality she now has a job and she has a high level job that she has to be at and so the doctor has to take turns cooking dinner with her and actually be an involved parent and so I think it's interesting that the doctor first faces these problems head on and thinks that if he controls the situation, it's all going to work out. But that's not how it works out. Everybody in that family is fighting for control of some kind because they're not on the same page. And so I just laugh when he calls this family meeting. You know, Rhiannon and I have had family meetings before. I'm sure that's a common thing. You know, have the family sit down and try to understand why there's so much chaos. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, I think family meetings are really the cornerstone of a lot yeah. of families. And yeah, real quick, I do think it is interesting that he says he's trying to treat and cure his family, like their patients instead of family members. And so he does have to learn a lot with this. And of course, the family meeting backfires like crazy because he's just trying to be the controlling figure in the family. He does not want to make any sacrifices for them though because they're all like oh you're changing our schedule around what are you doing to change she's like i'll make dinner and they're like you already do that like that is not a sacrifice yeah i thought that was funny mm -hmm. too I, I, it just shows that he is dealing with this and he has no idea no idea. <laughs> how to deal with the situation no idea <laughs> the, uh, the part that just is horrible is while they're trying to figure all of this out and he's having these really tough exchanges with his son there's a call that his daughter has been injured while she's playing her game she hit her head on the stone and she is going to die and the doctor works on her as much as possible it also reminded me of lull where he's working as fast as he can and he's working with another doctor to try to save her but everything he does she just slips away more and more and it is a really really heartbreaking scene to see 
the doctor can't deal with it and he pauses and he leaves and he says he's gonna leave the family and not play that hologram game anymore but it's paris of all people of all people on the ship which we haven't <laughs> talked about yet who has some major daddy issues he's the one to convince the doctor to stay with the family and to pursue that relationship yeah, incredible. The lines that he says to convince the doctor to go back and face his family and face his daughter's death, he says a couple things. I'm going to do a couple of quotes. The good times are bad. You can't have one without the other. And he also tells him, everyone left people behind and everyone suffered a loss, but look how it brought us all closer together. He also says, because ju- he just has a lot of good quotes in that yeah. scene, because this is when the doctor's saying, I'm just going to leave the family. Tom says, I guess all of us could avoid that kind of pain if we could, but unfortunately we can't. That's mm-hmm. a part of being human. Ooh, wow. He's just very wise in this episode. I'm like, go Tom. And it is really heartbreaking to see the doctor having to say goodbye to his daughter and having the whole family be together and And I think it's brave of him that he is not going to cheat himself out of this situation just because it's hard. I mean, he did have to have that push from Paris, but I think that it was ultimately his decision to go back and start the holo program again. And I mean, oof, it's still horrible and rough and difficult, but I am glad that he made that decision to go back in and face that. Tom is right. What makes you a family is not sitting down and having dinner together every night. What makes you a family is going through hard times and sticking with them. And that's exactly what the doctor chooses to do. And that's how you get close relationships with people is going through hard times and seeing that they stay and that they're going to support you and they're still going to love you no matter what happens. The doctor loses his daughter, but... I mean, we don't see in the show that he continues with his family after this episode, but I'd like to think that he still goes home, quote unquote, like after his shift and he goes and hangs out with his family. I hope that's true. And we know that he has a great family on Voyager, even if they might butt heads. He's committed to them and he really flourishes and blossoms, I think, because of what Tom told him to do in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. So Tom had an amazing (laughs) insight into the doctor's family life, and it is sort of contrary to how he initially started dealing with his own family issues. This is another person we see really grow and develop throughout the series. You know, in our pilot episode, if you heard it, we really bashed Tom Paris, and he's still certainly not one of my favorite characters, but... I do remember why I liked him so much the first watch, watching these family episodes. Even the one called 30 Days where he's locked up because he disobeyed orders and stuff. But I do think that it's really interesting to see him navigate the difficulties he has with his father. He has a lot of resentment built up towards his father. In this episode where they're all having visions of their family, he's telling his father to get out of my life. You know, he really does not want anything to do with his dad. While they're all waiting for letters to come back from their families, he's telling Harry Kim, like, don't get your hopes up. No hopes, no disappointments. That's what I learned in my family. Yeah, that line, I think, sums it up for Tom. We also learn in the episode 30 Days that Tom used to be obsessed with the sea and the ocean, and it was his dream to become a Navy pilot to hang out in the ocean all the time. But his father had expectations for him to join Starfleet. And so that's what Tom did. And I think Tom has always hated him for that. And I think he's been controlling of him his whole life. Tom is not in prison for the first time in 30 days. He says in a letter to his father, I'm in prison again. Mm-hmm. I mean, Janeway picks him up in a, in a colony, like in a prison colony. And so 
I think Tom has been rebelling his whole life against his father. And it sucks because his father's an admiral. He's Admiral Paris. And so it's not just your average Joe in Starfleet. Like this is an important admiral who Voyager communicates with regularly the closer they get to Earth. So poor Tom is sick of his dad trying to get away. And I think sadly that this journey into the Delta Quadrant might be the happiest he's been in his life. I mean, he finds a wife there. He wants to create a family on Voyager. There's even a time in the finale where Harry's kind of teasing him about fatherhood and saying, oh, no more late nights with Captain Proton and your friend Harry. That's annoying. But Harry has a moment where he really wants to go back and fight to find a way to go home to just fight the Borg in this wormhole area, but it's infected with Borg. And Tom says that's too risky i'm not doing it and harry says don't you want to get home and tom says i am home that's a sentence i think that differentiates him from the rest of the characters because there are some people who do have a better life on voyager and tom is one of them he happens to you know get friendly with and then eventually marry Bellana torres who also does not talk to her family at all and is pretty removed from them. And so I think her and Tom have found each other where they don't have parents to support them otherwise. It's just interesting the type of family you can build around yourself when your blood relatives are not there to help and support you. Yeah. I mean, they definitely have kindred spirits, Tom and Bellana do. And I think that's partially why they understand each other so much. And I mean, they both have struggles with their father and both have complications around sort of unfinished business around their family members. And I think that that does bring them close together. But also in the episode Lineage, where we find out that Bellana Taurus is pregnant, which is super exciting. Bellana is very determined to have her child not have any sort of Klingon DNA because she doesn't want her child to be treated the way that she was. She was bullied. People were very xenophobic toward her. Even her father made a lot of assumptions about her because she was Klingon. And I think similarly, Tom's father, Admiral Paris, made a lot of assumptions about him. He was always just the fly guy who was jumping around the prison system, essentially. I think his father expected to be disappointed by Tom. And so Tom just kept doing what his father expected of him. He's like, fine, if this is all you think of me, then this is all I'm going to be. And in the episode Lineage, where Bolana finally tells Tom the real reason she wants her baby to not have any sort of Klingon appearance or DNA was the fact that she's worried because her father abandoned her that Tom will abandon them when he realizes that he has to quote unquote deal with two Klingons. And I just find Tom's response again, Tom was pulling out some like magical wisdom here. And he said to her, because she's like, what if you realize that she's exactly like me, that she's very Klingon? And he says, someday I hope it's three or four. I hope that every one of them is like you. And he reaffirms that he will be there for her like her father wasn't and sort of like his father wasn't. And so I think that with their partnership and their family that they're building, they help to understand each other and to grow once they get past, you know, their sort of toughness. They both have a tough exterior that they, I think, use to hide a lot of their insecurities and pain. I do think it does make them good parents because they sort of understand how hard it can be to be a parent, also how hard it can be on the kids for parents who either expect too much of them or put them into these roles. Yeah, I think it's so good that Bolana talks with Tom about this fear of hers because 
what Balana does during lineage this episode, this is not normal behavior. This is not Balana just kind of stressed about her daughter being Klingon. This is her terrified because she changes the doctor's program. He's the only doctor on board. Yeah, Tom is there helping. Kess has been gone for a while at, at this point. This is a big risk she's doing. She's programming the doctor to accept her changes, to operate on her without Tom's permission. She's risking her career at this point because she's absolutely terrified that she's going to drive Tom away. And I think if they had not had this breakthrough and had this conversation during this episode, I don't know if their marriage could have made it because mm -hmm. Tom has to understand how deeply afraid she is and Bolana has to feel like somebody understands her because I think her whole life after her father left, we learn in flashbacks in this episode lineage that her father, in my opinion, has a privileged attitude. When Bolana says that the kids make fun of me at school, he says, oh, they called me a snore man or something, snorris yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah, because I fell asleep in class and she says, dad, like you don't get it, which no, he does, does not, not get it. He does not get that she's teased all the time for being Klingon. And she says, even on Voyager, even though it's a diverse ship, they have Klingons and Talaxians and Vulcans and Borg. Then there's also 127 humans and they're trying to make a parallel to life where Bolana clearly, you know, is raised in a mixed house growing up with white people, mm -hmm. I think is the metaphor here. And just how you can truly never understand what it's like. Bolana even has a quote saying, when you're around everyone else who's the same and you're different, you can't help but feel like that something is wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And also, I mean, to add on to all of this, Bolana believes that she's the one who made their parents get divorced because she has the perspective of a child. I think sometimes when you go through a trauma when you're younger, you can't fully understand the emotional ramifications until you're older. And so I think Bolana has always had this childlike mindset about her parents' divorce because we also know she hasn't talked to her mom in 10 years. They have a big anniversary during season six where she says, it's been 10 years since I've talked to my mom. So Bolana is incredibly isolated from her birth family on purpose. She she has clearly made the point to not talk to her mom. And after that camping trip with her dad, they got divorced and he has never reached out to talk to her again. So Bolana feels like in her mind, because I'm Klingon, my father doesn't want me, which I can't honestly fight her on that because her dad seems like a really horrible guy. <laughs> but the part that's important is that she understands that not everyone is like that. And Tom is not like that. And he's going to stay with her. You know, you can say a lot about Tom, but he's not going to leave Bolana. He no. really loves her. And so I think it's so important that they have this discussion and that Tom really understands where she's coming from because she has not taken the chance to trust anybody else with that information. I don't think she's ever talked about this before. And I'm just so happy that she has Tom to be that dad who's going to stick around for her kids and who's going to stick around for her and fill that hole in her heart that she's been needing for so long. Oh, wow. I teared up a little. That was beautifully said, Ashlyn. Thank you. I have a lot of issues with Bolana. She kind of annoys me. But rewatching Lineage, I really, really sympathized with her. And I just felt so bad for her. And I really understand her struggle. I mean, I, I do not understand her struggle. I am right. also in a privileged position and I do not understand her struggle at all. But I can empathize. And I just loved rewatching this one. Yeah, same. I definitely think that Bolana deals with a lot of cultural diaspora. You know, I think that it's really hard for her to reconcile just like with a lot of our other characters who have mixed cultures. Spock, 
Troy, you know, I mean, there's so many. I think that we're seeing this duality and I do love that Tom accepts whatever she needs to be, you know, and also accepts whatever their kid needs to be. And I got to say, even though the timeline in Endgame at the very last episode of Voyager wasn't actually the real one, their daughter is awesome. And I think she's probably going to grow up similarly in this new timeline that Admiral Janeway created, but she is so cool. She's like an ambassador to Klingons and she's working on all these negotiations. She's very headstrong and just like Bolana and just like Tom, like I saw a lot of both of them in her and it was just really cool to get a glimpse of her. Yeah. And she's talking to these full-grown Klingons and intimidating them during that finale. I love seeing that. Yeah, she's awesome. Same. The scene that just warms my cold heart was when at the very end of this Voyager finale, the doctor says, doctor to Paris, you know, and then it's just the sound of their child crying and to know that she's been born into this world right when they got home. I think just sort of solidifies how Tom is maybe starting to realize that, yes, his home was Voyager, but also his home is kind of like what Chakotay says, home is wherever you have to be, you know? And I think that he did find his home in like the confines of Voyager, but he realizes that home is deeper than that. And home can be a family, can be a moment, can be your child crying for the first time. It's just incredible. I really liked that scene. Yeah, I did too. And what a great life to be born as soon as Voyager reaches home. That's just... <laughs> yeah, that's pretty epic. <laughs> and someone else who's very excited about getting home is our resident ensign, forever ensign, Harry Kim. I don't have a lot to say about Harry Kim's family, but just that he is constantly pumped about his family. I do resonate a lot, even though he can be a little bit annoying about wanting to get back home. I also can't blame him because I cannot imagine being stuck in the Delta Quadrant and not getting to talk to you, Ashlyn. Like that would suck. Like I would literally be distraught and like not to talk to my family. Our family is very close, you and I, Ashlyn. We have two step parents. And so we technically have four families. And I think that the bond that we all have is very strong. And so I think that I would feel very similarly to Harry Kim being ripped away from family like that without even having to contact them. I think I would just take any advantage I could to try to get back to them. Gotta say, I do love when he finally gets to talk to his parents on the Hollow video. One of the first things they asked him is if he's been promoted yet. (laughs) And he hasn't, obviously. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was great just to have a typical family because Harry only gets three minutes to talk with them. And the mom is saying, oh, Harry, you told me you're in command sometimes. And Harry's embarrassed looking at Seven, who's listening to all of these family interactions and he's like mom I'm only captain on the night shift and she's like that's a lot of responsibility you should write a letter for my fifth graders because she's a teacher and then you know Harry's like no no mom like come on mom and she's like well you haven't been promoted maybe I should write to Captain Janeway tell her to expect a letter and I just love that I mean what a mom thing to do you know and Harry's like mom like don't write to the captain Harry talks about his family a lot, but it's just, it's nice, like we see with Cisco and Jake and some other family units, sadly not very often, to see a cohesive family that is very close and kind and just supportive. I love it. 
Yeah, I love it too. I, and he's always so excited to talk to them. There's so many scenes where letters are being passed out. Harry's hoping to get his and he doesn't. And then yeah. maybe he does at the end of the episode and he gets to talk to them. He's always the one who's fighting most to try to get home. As everyone else around him is settling and finding relationships, poor Harry, he can't catch a break as Tom keeps track of all the failed relationships he's had. I mean, he, of course, Voyager is his home, but he's not quite as sunken in as the rest of the crew are. So true. Yeah, he can never truly break that connection with his family. So I think half of his heart is always in the Alpha Quadrant. Yeah. Someone else who I think has an amazing family unit is my favorite full Vulcan, Tuvok. <laughs> I have to specify because I have a lot of favorite Vulcans around here, but oof, I just love him. And one of my very favorite things, we did discuss this a bit, is the fact that everyone goes to Tuvok for parent advice. We see it with Neelix. We see it with Paris even comes to him. And I just think he's always steadfast and just so devoted to his family. But he also is devoted to his job and to his Voyager family. And I think he is mm-hmm. the one who did expertly settle into both worlds, you know, that he still always thinks about his children and his wife. And even the thought of having to go through Ponfar with a holographic version of his wife is very abhorrent to him. But he, I mean, he's going to die otherwise, you know. And so I just love his devotion to his family. But I also really do love the way that he interacts with the crew and it becomes his second family as well. And I just think that we do get some insights into Tuvok's parents, his father. The episode flashback, Tuvok says that he did not want to be in Starfleet in the first place. And he actually left the fleet for 50 years to pursue his own scientific interests and everything. And he was about to take the Kolinar. Ponfar cut it short and he needed to take a mate. And so that's when he met Tapel, his wife. But we also learned that he was in love with another woman before then. Like there's a lot of depth that comes to Tuvok's early life before he even met Tapel. And I think that he did clash a bit with his father but in the episode i mentioned flashback he says at one point raising children of my own made me appreciate what my parents experienced raising me which is a very logical and beautiful way of thinking about child rearing and thinking about family lines I mean, the reason he brought that up is because his parents wanted him to join Starfleet and they thought it would be noble for him to do, even though he was resistant to it. But he followed their wishes, much like Tom did. He kind of had an opposite Sarek experience. Sarek would have loved having Tuvok as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to go to Starfleet. So then he left Starfleet for a while. He only rejoined as an adult with children because he wanted to finally honor his parents by joining Starfleet and finally understood why it was honorable to join Starfleet. So I think he has the wisdom to understand his parents even 30 years later. (laughs) And there is something to be said, we've talked about it before, that when you yourself become a parent, you begin to understand everything that your own parents went through while raising you. I love the scene. There's one in Once Upon a Time when Wildman and Tom are thinking that they're going to die and two box in there as well. I mentioned that he prefers to write letters of goodbye rather than make a video. And they ask him, why aren't you worried? Like, why aren't you thinking about your parents right now? Why, Basically, Tuvok, why aren't you freaking out? And Tuvok says he's not worried about his kids because he conveyed his morals to them and knows that they have good people around them, just like Samantha 
has with Neelix and Naomi. And Tuvok is consistently just confident in his ability to be a father. And I think that quote says it all. I also love when Tom comes to him and asks about becoming a parent. Tuvok says, my children are mostly grown now, and I haven't seen them in four years, so my parenting skills are dormant. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that just kind of cut and dry explanation. He's like, well, I can't really help you because my skills are dormant. (laughs) I do love that scene. I feel like Tuvok would be a great dad, and he's so understanding of everyone around him. Also, he's very wise. I mean, he doesn't look it, but Tuvok is like 80 during the events of Voyager. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, who better than Tuvok? <laughs> he is one of the wisest, I think, and the one who is truly connected to his family, one of the characters who really resonates. Well, I can't remember the episode, but there is a moment where Neelix is kind of pushing Tuvok because he's getting a letter from his wife to Pell. Neelix is like, oh, you got a letter. And he sits there and waits for Tuvok to read it. But Tuvok is finishing his report. And I get a little uncomfortable. I mean, also because Tuvok's one of my favorite characters and I feel like I have to protect him at all costs. (laughs) I don't like when members of the crew are insensitive about Vulcan customs. I mean, it's the same kind of back and forth I think they were trying to create with McCoy and Spock with Neelix and Tuvok, but it was not effective. You know, I mean, obviously... McCoy could have been nicer to Spock, but I think that Spock also jibed as well. They both got in cutting remarks and stuff, and they had sort of a banter-like relationship. But I think here, Neelix is putting his own views of family onto Tuvok. Then he starts reading this private letter out loud to Tuvok, and it's just so uncomfortable to me because I would like to see the crew be more sensitive (laughs) to that kind of stuff, to cultural and familial differences within the crew and with Tuvok especially. But I do like the fact that once Neelix leaves, Tuvok's like, you know what? I do actually really want to finish this letter. I want to hear all about my children and my wife. Then he puts his work down and I'm sure he finishes it a couple minutes later. I found that scene to be fairly interesting and also kind of heartbreaking to hear that his children are old now and his children are growing up and he missed a whole chunk of their life, you know? And I think that that's got to be so difficult. I mean, a lot of people on Voyager are dealing with this, but He's one of the only of the main crew who have young children back at home that are now growing without him there. So for those of you playing along at home, that episode is called Hunters in season four. And we also find out in that exchange that Tuvok is a grandfather and his oldest son has gone through the pond far and taken a mate. So this is a lot of information that he's getting from this character who's kind of annoying. And I feel for Tuvok and I just, I can't imagine how hard that would be to know that not only has your son gone through pond far, which is a very exciting time, you know, as a young Vulcan, Mm -hmm. then you take a mate and then you have a baby. Like, wow, that's a big deal for Tuvok. And so just how painful for him to miss it. It makes me happy to think about the finale and knows that he will meet that grandchild in three years. Don't stress. You're getting there, (laughs) Tuvok. It'll be okay. Yeah. Talk about someone who doesn't respect family. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, let's let's do it. Um, We're talking about Q here, in case you guys were wondering. (laughs) We decided to include Q in this because he does have two episodes called The Q and the Gray and Q2, where we see a character that we know and somewhat love from Next Generation come back and say that he wants to 
have a baby with Catherine Janeway. And it's pretty gross because he's pretty much forcing himself on her, trying to make her uh, have a baby with him. It's a it's a lot. It's a lot to unpack. I don't really we don't really have time to talk about the ethical issues of this, but I do want to say that the Q continuum is at war with itself, and so they're in this civil war, and he thinks that human DNA will restore peace and create sort of this like new messiah <laughs> essentially. And Janeway is not about it. I mean, this is a terrible solution to a civil war is what create a baby and the baby will solve it. In Q2, the episode where we actually meet Q's son, and don't worry, he doesn't mate with Janeway, we see that Q Jr. struggles with the weight that he's under because the continuum expects him to solve the problems of the entire race. And so does his father. And that's not fair to him. So I think Q's idea to create a baby to solve this is ridiculous. And it's thinking of life more as a tool than as what it is, someone with a heart and a brain. And so I think that's just kind of gross. Q ends up mating with a Q that he's been seeing for like, what, a millennia yeah. or two, <laughs> 20 billion years or something. Uh-huh. And then later in the second episode, Q2, when we end up experiencing more of the parent and father and son dynamics. I'm just not impressed by Q. I mean, he does say that he's never been a parent before and also that the continuum has never really had parents because the Qs exist and then they just keep existing forever. Mm-hmm. And so the civil war, there's no precedent for how to deal with it. There's no precedent for how to be a parent and they're just stupid. I just hate how they deal with Q Jr. I think he's treated unfairly. This sums it up. Q drops off his son with Janeway to force her and the crew to teach him some morality yeah which is crazy and Janeway has a quote in this episode where she says you can't just dump your child with someone and hope he learned something yes I mean for real Q was trying to make her the godmother of Q Jr and I gotta say Q Jr is a little turd like he is awful you said the t word <laughs> whoa I hate him he reminds me of a worse Greg Pakaitis from Parks and Rec if for any of you listeners out there who watch Parks and Rec he is just awful. I mean, he's worse because he literally takes away Neelix's voice and like traumatizes him. He sexually harasses Seven. It's awful, the things he does. And I mean, I of course, I'm not siding with Q Sr. here, but I do understand Q Jr. is a menace. Take a young adolescent and give him all the powers of the universe. It can get pretty sticky pretty quickly because he can just do whatever he wants. And so I think that it's great that Janeway also says parenthood is more than just cleaning up your child's messes. She's like, you actually have to like have an active role and start raising your son. And Q's like, oh, I've tried. Like I've had lunch with him or whatever the equivalent of Q lunch is, you know, but like he's like, he won't talk to me. And that's all he does to try. I just don't approve. But I think that it is great that they strip away Q Jr.'s powers and sort of teach him how to be human and similar actually to a plot that happened in The Next Generation. I was going to say it's reminiscent of when Q was a human and that was his punishment to spend a week on the Enterprise. (laughs) So they're, you know, recycling plots here. But I do think that it is clever that they sort of turn it on its head where like Q Jr. starts out as this little turd. And he's, I mean, he's still not great (laughs) by the end of this week, but he's starting to make friends with Icheb and realizing that this is the first friend I've ever had, you know, and starting to make actual valuable connections. He still steals a shuttle and is still trying to escape his destiny of becoming an amoeba because he does not want to become an amoeba for eternity, which like, sure, I get that. (laughs) But I don't know why they decided this would be a good plot or 
what, but it does put Janeway into this very uncomfortable position of having to be this quote unquote Aunt Kathy to Q when she's like, I didn't want this. I didn't. I have literally no involvement. This child has not anything to do with me, but just because Q can't parent correctly, I have to deal with this. I think the only thing that kind of saves the episode is the fact that Q Sr. takes an interest at the end of the episode when he tests his son and the son eventually ends up doing the right thing and he goes back and he apologizes because each of us injured he, he anyway mm-hmm. he he does the right thing and i think when the continuum decides to turn him into an amoeba anyway and q senior goes to bat for him and fights for him that is an important connection that they make because i think this whole time q jr has felt really downtrodden and just not loved by his family which like i can totally see why he also mentions that his mother abandoned him long ago and Q Sr. is left to raise him. I honestly feel bad. Yeah, he does some despicable things during this episode, but I can't blame him because he's had no guidance at all. He has free reign. He at one point summons three Borg ships to attack Voyager. He causes a war between peaceful civilizations. Yeah, just because he's bored. Yeah. He's absolutely a disturbance to the universe. (laughs) Chaotic neutral. Um, Yeah. Yeah, the definition of chaotic neutral. And I do like to see that there's a little bit of hope for them at the end of this episode. We never see them again. Um, I do hear rumors that we might get a Q appearance in Picard. I'm not saying anything. I don't know Mm. if that's true or not. Um, But I've heard rumors that we might get a John Delancey cameo. I don't know. I hope so. (laughs) But we only brought him up because it is something interesting to think about. Like if... (laughs) One culture had never experienced parenthood. Like, that's insane. They never have to deal with reproducing. It's just interesting, but yeah. it's also frustrating. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think it's also a interesting way to look at Janeway and how she deals with having this crazy kid on board because we talked about how Janeway is the mother of 200 <laughs> Voyager family. But, I mean, she doesn't have any kids of her own. She had a boyfriend who turns out to be a piece of garbage and gives her a Dear John letter. He was a fiancé. They were engaged. Oh, I forgot. Even Even worse. Because he Dear John her, Dear Jane, whatever. Dear Janeway. (laughs) Oh, God. Sorry. (laughs) I was waiting. I was waiting for you to make that joke. Uh Uh Which is devastating, but also I think gives her sort of the freedom to move on, which is so important, especially when you're stranded in the Delta Quadrant trying to find family and love and connection with people (laughs) to not have to feel like you're waiting for someone back home who turns out moved on without you which mostly I'm wondering what happened to the dog I'm like does she get another dog (laughs) not that that's the most important but she is the mother to a fur child so (laughs) anyway are her dogs okay I I wonder if during those episodes where they each get three minutes to talk to family does Janeway just like talk to her dogs I mean I would I'd be like You're like, come here. Someone throw the ball for him so I can watch him. Yeah. Yeah. Come here, Sparky. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, we get another episode called Coda. We don't know too much about Janeway, but Brianna mentioned in season three, there's an episode called Coda where she's caught in this loop where she just keeps dying (laughs) and her and Chakotay are on a shuttle and they go to the planet and she dies. And then it's a restart and she keeps dying no matter what the situation is and how they change it. And it turns out that it's because there's an alien presence who's trying to suck away her soul and feed off of it for a millennia. But it appears to her as the form of her father. And so she dies. It's kind of a Jordy Rose situation where she watches her own funeral. And her father is with her as a presence 
hands this whole time trying to convince her you have to move on because everyone around you who's living will slowly move on without you and it's incredibly painful and he mentions that when i died and of course spoiler at the end of this episode it's not really her dad is an alien trying to suck her life as i said but he talks about when he passed away when Janeway's dad passed away she was totally distraught and she was stuck up in her room she would not leave and her sister was trying to get her out of it and Janeway even says she thought she felt her dad in the room with her and so that delays her ability to move on and properly grieve for her father and so it seems like they were incredibly close we don't hear more than that honestly, for the rest of the season. So it sounds like she had a great relationship with her dad, but he was taken from her too soon. Real quick, I like a quote from that episode where she finally realizes like, they're not my father. You're some alien species trying to suck the life out of me. She says about her father, he never tried to shield me from life. Why would he try to shield me from death? And so I think that shows the sort of strong determination her father had to raise her in a way that was embracing life. And I mean, Janeway is one of the most incredible characters in all of the Star Trek canon. And so he raised an amazing child. I mean, him and I don't know if her mother was around too, but dang, it went well. Like, she's amazing. <laughs> it really did. Yeah. I mean, Rihanna and I, before we started recording the podcast, we both were thinking independently and then basically said it at the same time that we don't know how we're going to go this whole pod without just talking about Janeway the entire time. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised we um, did it, honestly. <laughs> I know. I mean, we had some moments where it was leaking into Janeway. But <laughs> so, yeah, as you said, we don't know anything about her mother. Like, this is what's crazy about Voyager is we don't know too much about these characters that we love. so much. One female figure in her life that she's very inspired by, I mentioned it at the beginning of the podcast, in the episode 1159, she talks about Shannon O'Doyle, who is the first female astronaut in the year 2000, which is funny, you know, (laughs) that we're in 2020 right now, so a couple years Mm -hmm. in the future. But so... Janeway believes that she worked on the Mars missions and that she did all of these incredible things. But when they have this little group meeting that I mentioned where they're all talking about their ancestors, Tom says that he was obsessed with the Mars missions because one of his ancestors worked on them too. But O'Doyle is not a name that he knows. And so Janeway does further research and discovers that Shannon O'Donnell did not do almost anything that she thought. And she only worked on the Millennium Gate, which is this self-sustaining city in Indiana, which is just a little bit of real life knowledge because I just love Janeway so much in Bloomington, Indiana, because that's where the character of Janeway went to school. I mean, IU, woo, go Hoosiers. There's actually in real life, they created a statue for Janeway and it's dedicated to her future birthplace. So it's just cool. Indiana's got some Janeway pride because Janeway has Indiana pride. I also love that Janeway Janeway is basically taking a 23andMe test in this episode and realizing just like a lot of people who take 23andMe, like, oh, wait, this is not the ancestry I was told about. <laughs> I think the story is important because this happens so much where when we look into history and find out that things are very fragmented and the data, no matter how much we think it's going to be preserved, the history is not going to be told the way that it deserves to be. And so Janeway, she's very disappointed when she finds out that Shannon is not as cool as she thought. Mm-hmm. But that was the reason why she joined Starfleet. And the reason she became a captain was because of this image in her head of this amazing woman who pushed boundaries. And that's what Janeway became. So 
really it's great that she had this role model and that's the point of why they create ancestors eve because they want to take the opportunity to honor the people who shaped you Mm -hmm. i think it's lovely that even though history might not be the way you expected i think it's still important to have icons in your life that help shape you yeah absolutely and i want to end on a quote that I thought Janeway said beautifully. There are three things to remember about being a starship captain. Keep your shirt tucked in, go down with the ship, and never abandon a member of your crew. And she didn't. She no. didn't abandon anyone. She created a family and brought in strays and helped them become a family together. And not only that, she got them home once and then said, that's not good enough. I need to get them home faster. So then she risks everything. And I I just briefly want to talk about this because yes, it's a family series. But as we've mentioned, and I think it's fact that this is her family. Voyager is her family and she has 200 children. And she is a little bit crazy in the finale. Mm -hmm. I think personally, Janeway's totally off her rocker. She is risking everything, her career, her position, her life. She's risking humanity's future. Mm -hmm. If the Borg come back into the present with them, it's over, man. It's it's all over. But Admiral Janeway is so convinced that she can better the lives of everyone on the crew. I mean, she's grief-stricken at the loss of Seven and Chakotay. I think she's just totally losing it. She's having a really hard time dealing with Tuvok's mental deterioration. Yeah. And so she says, you know what? I'm going to do better for my family. Damn the consequences. And she goes back in time, convinces her former self to go to a Borg transwarp conduit and go home. And you know what? It works. It works, yeah. And I've never seen a character so committed to something and such a perfectionist that she would change space and time to do it better. Hats off to Janeway. And uh, I have no words to describe Kate Mulgrew, especially in the finale, because the scenes where it's just Janeway talking to Janeway are some of the best scenes in all of Voyager. And it's just Kate Mulgrew acting with herself, but she's so fantastic and it's so compelling to watch her and just her tiny reactions are so impactful. I just, I'll talk about her all day. Love Kate Mulgrew, read her book, excited to read her new one. Yes. Oh, Kate Mulgrew, she's my mom. 100% agree. She has just adopted two more kids, us. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please tune in next week as Ashlyn and Rihanna discuss the familiar relationships in Enterprise. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check to see our suggested watch list for our upcoming episodes. If you like what you've heard today, please leave us a review on whatever platform you listen. If you would like to become a patron, you can donate any amount per month to have access to our exclusive reviews of Lower Decks, Star Trek Trivia, and future reviews of the animated series. If you would like to contact us for any reason, please do so at the Dura Sisters Podcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Warp's Revenge, is by Aurelo Voltaire. There's three ways to do something. The right way, the wrong way, and the Jane way.